All right, so our text this morning is Luke 18, 18 through 34, and the title of the sermon today is The Danger of Understanding the Gospel. Originally, whenever I titled this message, I, I was the danger of misunderstanding. But the more I began to reflect on the premise of what Christ was saying here, it's the danger of understanding. You're responsible for what you know. And uh, we're going to see that here in just a little bit. Let me just kind of uh, go backwards a little bit to bring us forward. The last uh, sermon that I preached through Luke two weeks ago, Brother, little Bob, uh, Brother Bobby Watts uh, preached last. Uh, I'm going I'm to have to get over calling him Little Bob. But uh, Brother Bobby Watts preached, Jr. preached uh, last uh, Sunday, did a great job. So thankful to see how God's using him. But before that, uh, the week before that, I'd preached on the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. And you remember how that story goes. The Pharisee was the one in the temple just kind of boasting of himself and all the good things that he's done for the Lord. And then the publican, the tax collector, which we're going to see in Luke 19 next week, where a tax collector is saved. So praise God for tax collectors and, and, and those who are considered to be the worst sinners that God has so graciously showed us in his word that he saves people of all backgrounds, of all colors, of all types. And uh, what a blessing that is to see that in the text. But then we see as uh, this story's unfolding that there's an object lesson put before the crowd and before the disciples where there were little children being brought to Jesus. And the disciples tried to stop the parents from allowing the kids to get close to, to Jesus. And you just kind of imagine, you know, this is grown up stuff. Just keep the kids away. This isn't for them. And Jesus said, absolutely not. He rebuked them. And he said, you let those kids come to me. And then he said, for such is the kingdom of God. This is what the word of God says. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And what Jesus is showing us is this statement. It encapsulates the idea that a person must become completely helpless and dependent upon Christ. That we're bringing nothing to the table but a dead sinner. That's who we are. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And, and so <clears throat> that's the idea of what Christ is trying to convey. Adversely, it means that if a person does trust in themselves or they're believing in themselves as to be worthy or doing some good thing to appease God or to be worthy of heaven, he's saying to you, be warned because there is nothing you can do. You have missed the point of eternal life. So in direct contrast to what Jesus just said, we have this encounter now with Jesus, this young ruler. Mark calls him a rich young ruler. And so we see here this young ruler, this magistrate, misunderstands the role of Christ. Now, he misunderstands quite a bit at first, but eventually he's going to understand it. He's going to get this. I'm going to show you that. Look at there in our text in verse 18. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. Now, let me just say that this question is a legitimate question at this particular junction. We've seen, let me recall your attention back to Luke 10. Other people asked Jesus the same question, but they did so in a way to trap Jesus. They wanted him to say something that they could use his words against them. You got to understand that Jesus was not loved by everybody. Still isn't. But back in Luke 10, we see this, a lawyer stood up who was a Pharisee we know from 
the text from the context. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you can almost hear the the smug uh, tone of his voice as he says that. On several occasions, we see people try to trap Jesus in words by asking him questions. But in this particular context, what we see is this young magistrate is asking a sincere, legitimate question. I believe he genuinely wants to know. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Obviously, we see that this young man was religious. He practiced the law. He understood the commandments. He just lacked assurance. Perhaps he was thinking that Christ could confirm him, that he could somehow demonstrate to Christ, this one who obviously is being used of God. Maybe if he could just have him bless him or in some way affirm his goodness, or maybe even if it costs him something, he's willing to pay. He just wants to know, when I die, will I go to heaven? I think that's a good question. I think all of us should be asking that question. What's going to happen to me when I die? Let me give you some statistics that are not in your favor. One out of every one person dies. It's a good question to ask. What will happen to me when I die? What must I do, he says, But this question shows that he's confused about salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me say something. You don't do anything to inherit. An inheritance is not something that you can earn. It's not something you work for. An inheritance is a gift. It's something that belongs to somebody and by their own generosity and goodness, you get an inheritance. If you have to do anything to get something, it's not an inheritance. It's something you've worked for. It's something you've earned. You see, a person can work to achieve a goal. You can pay a price to to acquire a product. You can work to earn a wage. Those of you who have jobs and you go to your job every week, you don't get a gift at the end of the week. You get a wage. Your boss does not love you that much. You get what you earn, but you don't do anything to inherit. It's by the, you know, let me say something. Kids, you may not like this. Parents don't have to leave you anything. They don't. There's no rule that says you've got to leave your children. You can leave it to me. I'll deal with them. You don't have to leave your kids any. An inheritance is a gift. Something that's belonging to somebody and by their own grace they give it. This young ruler is confused about salvation, isn't he? He's also confused about Jesus. Notice what he says in verses 18 and 19. The ruler asked him, good teacher. That's how he refers to Jesus. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. I think one of the things that Jesus is challenging this young ruler and by extension us is to understand what we mean when we think about the word good. 
We think of the term good in relationship to behavior. In other words, I'm good compared to somebody who murders and is in prison. I'm good compared to somebody who's in prison because of rape or drugs or whatever. I'm good compared to that person. We compare ourselves to a lot of people and we are good compared to a lot of people. So that's how we think of the term good. And we do this all the time. We say things like, boy, so-and-so, that's a good person. I hear it at funerals. They were a good person. We're in a meeting. Somebody's name gets brought up. Oh, that's a good person. And so we are accustomed to thinking of good in terms of the outward behavior and in comparison to others. That's how we define the word good so often. But what Jesus is pointing out is that no one is good except for God. Jesus wants this ruler, and again, by extension, all of us to reflect on this question. Here's the question. Ask it your way. Am I really good? Are you? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever stole anything? Anything. Just anything that wasn't yours. Took something, took a pen from the bank. You just wrote out something, you signed it, and you put that pen in your pocket. You walked out of there, you saw it. They got plenty of pens. If you're a waiter or a waitress and you work at a restaurant, people steal pens all the time, don't they? That's why they got a whole pocket full of them. You ever told a lie? Have you ever had a bad thought, an evil thought, wicked thought? How many evil thoughts have you ever had in your lifetime? I'm serious. Have you ever lusted after somebody who's not your spouse? Have you ever lusted after somebody else's spouse? Have you ever coveted after something that somebody else has? Have you ever used the name of the Lord in vain? Oh my God. That is using God's name in vain. It's using it as a byword. Jesus Christ. You ever use the Lord's name in vain? I want to ask you again, are you a good person? Good is on the basis of, is understood on the basis of what we are comparing it to, isn't it? When you're matching that up to the law and to who God is and His holiness... We're really not that good. Jesus is challenging this young man to think, are you good? But Jesus is also showing this young man that he's oblivious to who he's talking to. This young ruler believes Jesus to be a good teacher. But Jesus says, think, man. If only God is good and you're calling me good, who are you saying that I am? Am I just a good teacher? Think, who am I? What am I doing? In other words, think of it like this. This young man is inquiring about the kingdom of God and he's staring the king of that kingdom in his eyes and is oblivious to who he's talking to. He's confused about salvation. What should I do to inherit? He's confused about Jesus. Is he just a good teacher? Or is he the king of the kingdom of God? So Jesus is just going to allow this conversation to go on. And so he challenges his goodness. 
You know the commandments in verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, if you know the 10 commandments, you know that those are the latter 10. There are five and five. Make up 10. All one complete group. But Jesus just goes to the latter five. And what he's doing, he's addressing the social ethics part of the Ten Commandments and the relationships that we have with other people. When the young ruler heard this, immediately he responded, didn't think, he just responds. And he says in verse 21, he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. I've done all of those things. Every one of them. I'm perfect in the, this is what he's saying. I'm 100% perfect in the law. I have broken not one of those that you just listed. When Jesus addressed these commandments, Jesus appealed to the spiritual nature of the commandments, did he not? If this, this young ruler would have just thought for a little bit through this dynamic, more than the outward appearance, more than the outward behavior of how he is determining his own goodness is the outward. What did Jesus do when he talked about the commandments? He appealed to the spiritual nature of them. And that's why he said, whoever has lusted after a woman in his own heart has committed adultery. What he's saying is you don't have to commit the physical act to break the law. You can break, you can break the law by sinning in your heart and in your mind. I'm going to ask you something. Have you ever murdered anybody? Jesus said, whoever has hated his brother has murdered. The point is, is that there's a spiritual nature to the law that God is giving to us. And it's saying that it doesn't have to happen on the outside. If it, if it just happens on the inside, that's enough. Let me ask you something. Was Cain a murderer before or after he killed his brother Abel? He was a murderer first in his heart before he committed the act of murder. You think, man, I haven't done these things. I'm a good person. I've done all these things that are required of me. Have you? Think. Think about what Jesus, that's what Jesus is wanting us to do is think about these things. And just reflect a little bit. So Jesus says in verse 22, when he heard him say this, well, one thing you lack. And here's the way he's saying it. One thing you still lack. It's a present tense. And what it's saying is, it's the one thing you will always lack. It's just the nature of who this young man is. One thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That. Wait a minute. Jesus is telling this guy he's got to do something for salvation. No, he's telling him what he's not doing. And he goes to the very first commandment. That's what he's doing. He's just giving it in a practical form. And this is the practical form of the first commandment. But what is the first commandment of the 10? You shall have no other gods before me. And what he is exposing in this young man's life is that money and materialism is his God. Yeah, you've done good over here. But you worship your money and I'm going to prove it. Get rid of it and come follow me. If he would have said to this young man, 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That young ruler would have said, I'm keeping that commandment. I don't worship idols. So Jesus didn't ask him the question. He gave him the application of it to point out what was in his heart. This is your God. Money's your God. That's why you will never follow me because you will always follow after the lust for money that's within your heart. The young ruler thinks he's a good man, but Jesus is showing him that he is not good at all. And by the way, let me just say something to you. James said this very clearly. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see, we call them the Ten Commandments, but it's really just one big commandment. You break one, you break it all. That is what he's showing us. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, the best five minutes of your life will still fall short of the glory of God. You need to know that Jesus is not extending an invitation to this young man. Jesus is pointing out that this young ruler will never follow him. Jesus knew that he would never give up his God of materialism, which is why he said one thing you still lack even now, today, tomorrow, and forever. You will lack this. It is, it is the, this is the God you have made. And the moment you understand this gospel, you will still not do what I'm saying. Jesus is just making it clear so that the young ruler understands the gospel. And this is the moment he gets it. This is the moment he understands the gospel. Because look at his response in verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. He knew in that moment that he would not give up his money to follow God. The young ruler was sad, not confused. And he was sad, not because he didn't understand the gospel, but because he understood it. Hence the title of my sermon, The Danger of Understanding. When you understand it and you still reject it, it's a grievous thing. The Bible says, the way this is in the Greek is that it was an over, it was a surmountable amount of grief. And I would essentially, and I believe that ultimately what we see in Scripture, that whenever there's this type of grief where there's no, unre no repentance, it leads to bitterness. I just kind of envision this ruler in his older age as a bitter, mean, greedy old man who nobody likes. Because he understood the gospel. He understood what it meant to follow Christ. Let me be very clear with you this morning. People do not reject the gospel on the basis of not understanding it. People reject the gospel because they're unwilling to part with their sin. They love their sin. They love the thing that's keeping them from following God. What is it? Men rejected God because they, they rejected the light because they loved the darkness. They love their evil. 
A lot of Christians mistakenly think if we could just make the gospel clearer for unbelievers, more people would get saved. If we would just do a little bit more to appeal to unbelievers, more people would get saved. No, they would not. The God of all creation was standing face to face with this young ruler and explained to him in no uncertain terms the clearest form of the gospel and he rejected him to his face. Well, we get, a, we, get a, we get a mixed ideas about how we're going to get people into the kingdom, don't we? We put that on us on ourselves. And we're going to see the crowd picks up on this. This young ruler rejected what he understood. He left sad, not confused. He knew exactly what to do, but was unwilling to do it. Jesus, seeing that he becomes said, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible, by the way, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The greater the wealth, the greater the obstacle to the kingdom of God. And again, don't put yourself in a category of I'm not rich. The same way that we do I'm a good person is the same way that we would also communicate we're a poor person. By comparison to what are you good? By comparison to what are you wealthy? I would venture to say that we have a room full of extremely rich people today by the standards of the world. Maybe you're not as rich as some in Hollywood or people who own oil companies. But don't mistake the fact that we are just as guilty of loving materialism as the poorest person in the world longing for materialism. We need to understand that wealth is a deceiver. And what wealth does is that it gives people a false sense of security that that's what they need above all else. That's why we work the way that we work. That's why we dream the way we dream. We obsess the way we obsess because we actually believe that this is the answer. Now, I'm not going to digress too much here, but I'm going to say that I don't believe that God intends for, uh, for wealthy people to become impoverished for the sake of the kingdom. But it does mean that we all... Whatever we have, we give to God. It's His. If we are wealthy, if we're not wealthy, whatever we have belongs to God. That's the point. We're not depending on these things. They are not our God. We're not finding our hope in materialism or houses or cars or our checking account or savings account. What Jesus is doing is wanting to be very clear that to follow Him, we must be willing to give everything over to His control in other words, I don't just trust Jesus with my sin. I trust Him with my checkbook. I trust Him with everything in my life. That's what we are doing when we follow Christ. It's trusting Him with all of me. That any man who comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Doesn't matter how much money you have, you're just not trusting in it. This conversation is going on between Jesus and this young ruler, but obviously the crowd is listening. 
Others were hearing what was going on. Perhaps they even knew this young ruler. I don't think he was traveled some long distance. He was probably a local, a good guy, one that other people aspired to and looked up to and said, I want to be like this guy whenever I grow up. Many people probably coveted after, many in the crowd had probably coveted after this guy. A great, upstanding citizen who had been blessed by God in so many ways. I want to be like that guy. Those who heard what was going on and this man went away grieved over what Jesus said because he understood the gospel. They heard it and they said, then who can be saved? In other words, if this guy can't be saved, what hope is there for me? And this is what Jesus said. What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is what Jesus plainly tells them is that no man, it doesn't matter who you are, how good you are, how rich you are, how poor you are. It doesn't matter what skin color you have. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl has the power to save themselves. Salvation is only of the Lord, 100%, totally and completely of God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You can't do anything to save yourself. It is a gift. What is salvation? According to scripture, it's a gift, right? If you can do anything, it is no longer a gift. Listen to what scripture says, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, you earn death. You deserve death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. In other words, your faith is not even of you. Your faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. All of your salvation is a gift of God. He said, it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, salvation is not God doing his part and you doing your part. It's not like being on a rowboat where God has one oar and you have the other oar and you're both just oaring together. I know I said that wrong. It's supposed to be rowing. It's not God puts in his half and you put in your half. God does it all. That's why salvation is a gift. If you have salvation, it was entirely the work of God in your life that gifted you His grace. You did nothing to earn it. And if you did, here's what you could say, man, good for me. I'm so glad that I did that. No. You know who you were before you were saved? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you know what a dead person can do? Nothing. Not one thing. This is why Jesus said that with man salvation is, po is impossible, but with God it is possible. So now then, the only person in this equation that understands anything that's going on is the young ruler. He's going away grieving. Now the crowd's confused. Now Peter's confused. Listen to what he says. He said, Lord, now see, we've left our homes and followed you. This is really a question. What Peter is saying is, Lord, we've, we've done what you told the young ruler to do. 
We've left our homes and we've left everything to follow you. What does that mean for us? You know what? I, I really don't understand Peter's motive completely. But I think he's, he is at least starting to understand that there's, that there's within salvation that this is, this is only the work of God. But what about those who do sell everything? What about those who do give away everything and they give their all to God and they're following Christ completely? What about that person? What, what then for them? Jesus said to him, so he moves on beyond. Again, you got to understand what, what's happening here. He's transitioning beyond the, the work of salvation onto what happens subsequent to one's salvation. What, what happens after one is saved? And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is not saying that a person is saved because they sell all their possessions and give to the poor. Clearly to be saved is the work of God and what God does. And it's you trusting in God, Him being everything to you. You giving Him your love and your trust. But when you do this, it will also require you to give all of yourself. Let me say it like this. Your salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you everything. So many people get this idea. This is the danger of easy believism when all you have to do is bow your head and say a prayer, be saved and walk out of the church completely unsaved. Lost as you were before you came in and said that prayer. No, salvation is free, but don't you ever misunderstand. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Let him who is to follow me take up his cross daily and follow me. He must die to self. Now the actual giving up of things is not required of everybody, but the, the willfulness to give it up is. In other words, we give up everything in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, I hold everything that I have. My vehicle, my clothes, my check, my check account. Everything I have is yours. My children, my wife, everything I have is yours. I own nothing. I brought nothing in this world. I can take nothing out of this world. That's how we should understand following Christ. He's our goal above every single thing. What Jesus here is saying that for the one who does all of these things, there will be many rewards, both in this life and the life to come. Now, let me say some things here about this passage. And most commentators agree with me on this, that um, Jesus is not saying if you're married to abandon your wife and if you have children to abandon your children to follow him. That would be antithetical to what he teaches in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and how he trains us to be good husbands and good fathers. What he's saying, though, is this. By following Jesus, some of you may not get married You may give up on having a spouse. You may give up on having a family. How many of you have ever heard of Lottie Moon? How many of you have ever heard of the Apostle Paul? The one who gave some of the greatest instructions on marriage and parenting never had a wife or children, the best that we know from Scripture. 
And so he's not talking about abandonment. What he's talking about in some ways, in some ways the practical sense, leaving home, leaving your familiar surroundings, <clears throat> but perhaps even possibly leaving the idea of ever getting married. I do believe that there are some who are gifted with singleness. And though others around you might think you need to be married, maybe you shouldn't. Devote yourself to the Lord and for His service. But then he says that if you do this, if you leave your home though, if you do leave all of your surrounding, you're following me, if that is what is required of you, just know something, Peter, just know something to all who have done that, that I will bless you with many times over relationships in this life and eternal life in the next to come. In 2004, my wife and I packed up a U-Haul truck with all of our belongings. Our oldest daughter, my wife, was pregnant with Gracie. And we moved 12 hours away to Bourbon, Missouri, where I entered into my first full-time pastorate position at First Baptist Church in Bourbon. We left everything behind to go to a place that was completely different from everything that we knew. It was a different region. It was mountainous. It was cold. People talked funny. They didn't have sweet tea. That was different. My parents helped us move. And I remember the day that they had to leave when we got settled into the house where we were at up in Bourbon, Missouri. My parents had to drive off. And my oldest daughter went to the door and she leaned her head up against the glass. My mother, tears streaming down her face. The hardest thing I ever had to do in ministry was leave my familiar surrounding and friends. You've got to understand, I love my family. I love the area I grew up in, and that's, that was part of my life. One of the most difficult things we did in ministry was leaving our family. When my mother-in-law died of cancer, I watched my wife hurt because she couldn't be there. When my grandfather died from cancer, I couldn't be there to help. We missed a lot of precious moments. When my children had birthdays or games, there were no grandparents in the stands. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. In 20 years of ministry, we have gained a massively wonderful family of brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and, and moms and dads and grandparents that we would have never, ever had had we not followed Christ. Starting from a conversation I had with Bobby Watts several weeks ago, I began to write down and take note of the people in my life that are strictly from the relationship I have with Christ. I don't have enough paper and ink but oh, the names that stood out was Ricky and Wanda Squires, Adam and Amanda Holloway, Curtis and Lori Alexander, Seadale and Emma Murphy, Rich and Marge Liebenguth, Gary and Kathy Lynchard, Cy and Becky Alexander, Kevin and Jennifer Brooks, Patricia Slanker, Chuck Slanker. He wrote a song about me. He's the only one I know that was crazy enough to write a song about his pastor. Paul and Carol Mercer treated us like parents, like grandparents. Roscoe and Ruth Holsey, Imogene Nelson, Brian and Rachel Morris, Ken and Agnes Owen, Pete and Sharon Ledbetter, Peggy Williamson, William and Tommy Smith, Sally Diggs, Raymond, Becky Johnson, Doug and Loretta Zellner, and the list goes on and on. And that's not to mention every one of you. Yeah, God's truth prevails 
there's nobody that will ever leave where they don't gain so much more. You will never, ever, ever sacrifice for the Lord without gaining, without gaining so much more than you've ever given up. That's why Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Regardless if God requires you to make the same sacrifices as me or others who have left their home and all of their surrounding to go to a strange place to meet new people and a new way of life, following Jesus does come with a cost. You don't have to leave to pay the price. Look at how Jesus closes out this section in verses 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is the seventh time Jesus has said that statement. Because that was the purpose. He was on a journey. He was on a road. He knew where he was going and he knew what he was going for. He said he's on his way to Jerusalem so that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Here's the key. The disciples were 100% certain that Jesus was the Messiah. They had no doubt in their minds that he was the promised son of God and they were trusting in him. But it was inconceivable that the son of God could be treated in such a way and die. What they had no idea of is how much their salvation would cost him. You see, they're thinking, well, Lord, we've left all this stuff We've left our our family. We've left our home. And Jesus said, don't forget what the Son of Man is doing for you. He who lived in the splendor of glory and being so rich came down and became poor and became a mere man. He gave up everything. He emptied himself and became a servant to the point of being obedient to death, death on the cross. You think you're going to outgive me? You think I'm going to require something of you that I do not require of myself? I've given everything for you. They didn't understand it at this point. We get it. We're looking back, but they're going to get it. They're going to understand it. It's going to be revealed. It's only being kept from them during this period. But He is going to show them that they will not outgive Him. He has given us everything. And He did it for His people. What love is this? That Jesus would lay down His life for His friends. The young ruler finally got it. He understood it. He understood that there was a cost in following the Lord. And he rejected that. Do you know why? Because he considered his money and his power more worthy of following than Jesus. 
But I want to ask you a question this morning. Knowing all that Christ has done for you and knowing the suffering as we observe the Lord's Supper, let me ask you this question. Is there anything in life that is more worthy for you to follow than Jesus Christ? Anything. God may not require you to give it up physically, but He is definitely calling you to give it up in your hearts, in your minds. That Lord, I don't have to have this. I'm giving it all over to you. I don't want you to just take my sin. I want you to take my life and all that comes with it. Forsaking all to follow Jesus. Is he worth it? Yes, he is worth it. And you will never outgive Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, as we think about the gospel, the cost of the gospel to yourself and what you paid that we couldn't pay and what you do that we couldn't do. Your goodness, your grace, and your generosity is so overwhelming. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to empty our hearts at the things of the things that we are thinking more nobler than you, more worthy of you, that Lord, we would give it up for the sake of following you. Help us, Lord, to know the right order. We don't give up these things to inherit these eternal life, Lord. We give it up because we have inherited eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. It's by your grace. But Lord, following you, we will never outgive you. Help us to know that. By trusting in you, by believing, God help us to be grateful for your graciousness. Lord, I pray for those this morning who understand the cost, but they're unwilling to pay it. They would rather have their sin than Jesus. God, be merciful. Be gracious. May you get glory through this sermon, through this service, and through our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.